Hi, I'm Nick McCarville, and you are listening to the Functional Tennis Podcast. Welcome to episode 106 of the Functional Tennis Podcast. I'm Fabio Molly, the usual host, but today I'm changing it up. Keen, who helps me run the podcast, is taking over for today's chat with Nick McCarville. Nick is well known in the tennis media circles. He has experience writing, commentating, interviewing and live event hosting. He talks about how he broke into the industry, staying up to date with all the current tennis news, his involvement in the LGBTQ tennis community and his role at the upcoming Olympics. Before we get started, a shout out to our podcast sponsor Slinger. Slinger make the awesome portable ball machine, the Slinger bag. Head over to slingerbag.com to find out all about it. Hope you enjoy the change up this week. Okay, here we go. Hey, Nick. Welcome to the Functional Tennis Podcast. How's it going? Yeah, good. Thank you guys so much for having me. Yeah, no, absolutely. Look, we've been emailing back and forth over the last while to get you on. So it's finally happened. So no, it's great to be able to, to speak to you. So we'll jump straight into it, Nick. You were involved in tennis for quite a while. The media side of tennis, commentating, interviews, the whole lot. Maybe you could just tell us how you broke into the industry and how you kind of became involved with tennis. Sure. I mean, I was a tennis obsessed kid. I, I played it as a youngster growing up in, in a place in Montana that is not big, well known for its tennis whatsoever. We have long winters. So we played tennis in the snow and rain sometimes. But when I got into high school, I was really competitive as a player. And I say really competitive in the sense of I maybe could have played some college tennis, but that passion really carried me through. I got my journalism degree in Seattle at Seattle University for college and moved to New York right after I graduated from college. And my my whole goal of moving to New York City was to work in the tennis industry. So initially, I thought that was going to be Tennis Magazine, where I was an intern during college. But um, eventually, it really led me to a freelance career. I had really probably my first big breakthrough gig was with the New York Times. A year after I had moved to New York, I did some blog work for them. And that was kind of my maybe my first big splash. And from there, it was one gig after another. So did you actually end up playing college tennis or you were just could have played college tennis? <laughs> <laughs> Good pressing question. You know, I played in high school and I think I could have played D2 or D3 college tennis. I maybe could have walked on to a D1 program. But for me, I wanted to go to a small school, big city, and Seattle U was just the right fit. And actually, when I went there, they didn't have a tennis program. So that was sort of the end of my playing days, which is which is okay with me. Yeah, no, no, look, that's fair enough. The only reason I ask is because I was going to ask you, you know, not coming from a professional background, do you think it gave you or it puts you at a bit of a disadvantage to try to actually break into the tennis industry. Absolutely. And I, th I think that's changed in the last 15 years too. I think more and more you're seeing former athletes, retired athletes, even current athletes working on the media side of things and hosting and commentating and, and being... I think that whole world has kind of moved into more of a gray space communications and, and PR and TV and all of that, which I, I wouldn't say is for the better or the worse. But I, I think for me, I've always tried to take the storytelling aspect, understanding athletes and the different challenges that they face. That's always been my onus. And that's what I've tried to do, emphasis on the try throughout my career. And when you actually tried to break into the tennis industry, was it always journalism? Was that the route you wanted to go down? Or were you kind of open to other things as well? 
Yeah, so my degree in Seattle was uh, at Seattle U was a written journalism. I did a you know an intensive journalism program, and it was very newspaper based. So it was investigatory journalism and fact finding and news writing, all that sort of stuff. So when I got into the tennis sphere in twenty nine, ten, eleven. It was first and foremost through writing. So the New York Times for sure, a little bit of stuff for USA Today. And then I got hooked up with NBC for the London Olympics in 2012, as well as the USTA for the US Open in 2010 and 11. And that was all written based. And so that was kind of my through way into the media side of things. Yeah, no, that's awesome. It sounds like you've, you've worked in a bunch of places there, you know, and gotten so much experience, which is really cool. But do you think you're more drawn to journalism or do you think you're more drawn to tennis? Oh, that's a great question. You know, in the last few years, I've, I've really expanded my career. I work now with the Olympics at the Olympic Channel, and it's been a great challenge for me, I think, because it's taken me out of that comfort space that tennis has offered. I would say it's like a 51-49 where I love my journalism work and the storytelling. And then I have that that love for tennis too. But I think it's been part of my personal journey to challenge myself to get out of that space a little bit. I remember Chris Clary, who's a, a great New York Times writer, who's um, someone I looked up to, I still do, but he's been a colleague of mine now for the last few years. He told me pretty early on, don't don't just do tennis. And that wasn't, that wasn't a commentary on anyone who does just do tennis, but I think he wanted me to try other things. And I think the Olympics has offered me that. But yeah, the, the passion is pretty 50-50 when it comes to the tennis and the storytelling. And tell me, what other sports did you kind of get into besides from tennis then? Because you are involved with the Olympics at the moment. Yeah, so I kind of lucked out because I covered in 2012 London and I did it in New York. So I was part of the NBC Olympics website team and I was the tennis editor and then covered a few other sports. And the turnaround from the summer games to the winter games, that's always the shorter of the two turnarounds between the Olympics. Obviously this year with Tokyo and the delay, it's been much, everything's been changed, but they needed someone to step into a figure skating role after London to get ready for Sochi 2014. And it just felt like a great career opportunity to me. You know, figure skating is the premier sport in the Winter Olympics. And it was a sport I'd watched growing up. I, I loved the figure skating as a kid, but I, I hadn't covered it professionally whatsoever. And so I, I dove into the deep end and I, I made some mistakes. I got in a little bit of trouble at NBC because I wasn't I wasn't up to snuff, I, I think, the way I should have been right off the off the bat. But those couple of lessons really gave me the chance to look at, okay, you you need to be a pro here and apply what I've been doing in tennis at that point for four years into another sport. And then that's led me into other Olympic sports. So right now, you know, working across the swim trials and in the US, um, getting ready for Tokyo, obviously gymnastics. I've covered diving, swimming, as I mentioned, track and field. And I've gotten to cover the New York City Marathon the last few years that it's been held, which has been a, a great cultural event, but another good sporting challenge away from the tennis sphere. Yeah, you know what? It's actually quite interesting that you said figure skating because two weeks ago, I think at this point, we had Dylan Moscovich on and Dylan's partner is um, professional tennis player Sharon Fitchman. So um, it's kind of funny the way we have kind of nobody from figure skating and then we have two people within two weeks kind of Yeah, thing. that's great. You know, I know Dylan very well from the figure skating world and Sharon, I've done a couple of things with too. I think they're they're such a great couple. And we actually had Bianca Andrescu on the Olympics podcast a few weeks ago. And I asked her what the 
Olympic sport she would do if she was able to step away from tennis. And I thought she was going to say like water polo or something. I don't know. I see Bianca is so strong and such a fighter on court. And she said that she loved figure skating. <laughs> so oh, it, was, nice. it was like a nice surprise from Andrescu. Um, she called out Joni Rochette, who's a, a bronze medalist from Vancouver in 2010 in figure skating. But um, And also Barbara Strichova, who just retired, obviously, former doubles world number one. She actually had to pick between tennis and figure skating. She was doing triples. She was a very good figure skater as a kid. And I think Donna Vekic is a, a pretty good figure skater. So there's there's plenty of tennis figure skating crossover. <laughs> uh, there's, there's a lot more than I knew of there. I learned quite a few things there. But just bringing it back to tennis then, Nick, and I guess this question is kind of, you do a bit of writing, or at least you used to, and I'm sure you will in the future. In a world of instant data that we live in, so everything's on the internet, how important is the quality of writing content compared to the speed of publishing? So is it better to get it out there quickly, or is it better to really think about it and put something good out there? Oh, I mean, it's something that is, you know, I think it was important 10 years ago, and I think it's still important today. You know, everything's so immediate with social media and I think Twitter especially. You know, and when you look at a, a news perspective, you know, websites want traffic. You want to be fast. You've got breaking news. I think a lot of that is preparation and making sure that, you know, when I was working at USA Today for two years covering the tennis for them, I would pre-write a lot of stuff. If Serena was in a Grand Slam final, we would pre-write that article so that all those little factoids were there. And then as you say, you know, the data and the kind of the quick numbers that are coming through, whether it be first serve percentage or winners in a match or match length or attendance figures or whatever it is. I, I'm of the perspective that it's important to be right <laughs> and to be correct. And, to, you know, sometimes do you lose speed off of that? I think yes, but I think that's kind of my, my news journalism background in that perspective. Yeah, no, I would imagine it's always going to be tough to actually be first, regardless of even if you are ready to go, because I just imagine so many people are lined up. But tell me, Nick, how do you keep your writing or your commentating whenever you're commentating on matches? How do you keep that fresh so you don't actually, you know, become repetitive? And I guess that's probably more applicable in the actual commentating part of it. Well, the commentating, I think, is its own beast. And I think that my work, as we've talked about, I'm not a former player. I'm not someone who's stepped onto center court at Wimbledon or understands the pressure of trying to qualify for a Grand Slam or play a, a 15,000 challenger event in Eastern Europe. I, I don't know any of that. So my, my goal, whether I'm writing an article or whether I'm commentating, is to get as much information as possible so that I, I can help the viewer understand who is this person? What is this person? What is their tennis about? And, you know, I, I think there's different perspectives. We're just talking about data. Sure, that's important. But what about the fact that someone just lost a parent in the last few months? Or they just got over an injury? Or the conditions are, are crappy for them that day? They, they don't like the cold conditions or, or whatever it is. All of those different factors trying to understand it, I think, from a commentary and reporting perspective is really important. And so that's where I see my role stepping in and trying to, to contextualize all of that, not telling people how it is, but just helping them understand what the context is. For me, preparation is of the most importance. So I, I think sometimes it gets lost that commentators should be across everything, know everything, be able to talk about any player and... It doesn't quite work like that. You've got to, of course, have a, a respect for the field and see what's going on from a, a greater scope. But you're focused on the two or three matches that you're doing in a day. And I'll sit and prepare for 
I'll probably for a match at a Grand Slam, I'll prepare for three hours to get ready for a match to make sure I've watched YouTube clips and read press transcripts and looked at social media and past results. And a lot of that is ingrained. I understand it already, but I want to sit down in that chair and be as prepared for the match as the players. And that is a different... Obviously, it's a much different realm. I'm not putting myself on the same playing field, but it's about preparation. Yeah, no, it's really interesting when you say about all that prep time, because the next question that I was going to ask you was, do you find it difficult to switch off from work sometimes? Because I guess when you need to keep up with all the information and with social media, you know, if someone breaks up with the coach, you know, if uh, if there's a new sponsorship deal and someone gets a new racket and maybe they're not quite meshing well with their, their new equipment, do you find it difficult to actually get away from tennis? Because obviously you need to keep up with it all the time. Yeah, I put those boundaries up a few years ago. Um, you know, and I think sometimes I've, I've, um, lost out on a few things. You know, sometimes you sit down and you did miss something or you didn't prepare in a way. I got in a little bit of trouble at the Australian Open because I, I wasn't aware of Aslan Karatsev and the way that he had come up the challengers. And the context around that was that I, I wasn't really calling men's matches at the Australian Open. They had asked me to do more women's matches, which I was happy to do. So the men's draw wasn't something that I was paying that close attention to because my role was mostly women's matches. I did end up doing a few men's matches. And so, you know, when you talk about boundaries and professionalism and all of that, you know, we're all human beings. So in my work in the last year or so, as I've stepped more into the Olympic realm, I've had to shift some of that. And I'm I'm across the tennis every day. I follow it as closely as I can. But also my job has, has shifted. And so I also have a life to live. You know, I, I think that <laughs> we want to do our best. We want to sit down in the chair, or write an article and, and make it as good as it can be. I also want to make sure that I'm taking care of myself as a person too. So it, it's, it's a tough balance because sports are long days, tennis is long days, weekends, nights, all of that. And so trying to strike that balance is, I think, forever going to be a challenge, no matter where you work in, in the sport media sphere. Yeah, no, I'd say it's a fine line between the lifestyle and an actual job, you know, what, whatever that difference is. But tell me, you've done quite a bit of freelance work. And I'm just wondering, it's probably not the case now, but especially maybe early on in your career, were you always or was it stressful or were you worried that maybe where's my next gig going to come from? Is this going to be my last commentating gig? Am I going to mess it up? Always. <laughs> You're always worried about that. <laughs> I think that's the pressure that keeps you going. And I I also think it's about relationships. As we've talked about, I'm not a former player. I'm someone who's always tried to lead with my work. And so am I the best writer, the best commentator, the most knowledgeable person, the, you know, whatever in my CV? Sometimes no, but it's about doing the hard work and putting yourself into a position where you can succeed. And, you know, I, I really tried to see that as a blessing and a and as a challenge. And you know, do I have certain advantages as a middle class white male in a sport that has been upper class white male for a long time? Probably, but also being able to see those privileges that I do have and try to lift other people up and work as a team and, you know, really try to see the collective. I think that that's a, a challenge for all of us. And I think that for me, that pressure of the freelance side, it's something that drove me for a, a long time. And it's kind of, it's fun, right? Because you're, you're wanting to succeed as much as you can. But I think then as we were talking about the boundaries too, of putting up some of those boundaries, 
striking that balance. Again, that's the challenge. This podcast is brought to you by ASICS Tennis. ASICS is a Japanese company founded in 1949 with the purpose of giving more people the opportunity to experience how sport and movement can have a positive impact on mental well-being. They just launched their most innovative tennis range ever. Get the new Cord FF3 Novak or Gel Resolution 9 at ASICS.com. ASICS Tennis have also just launched their new Cord FF3 Novak, the only tennis shoe designed with Novak Djokovic input. To learn more about ASICS, visit their website www.asics.com. Do you think being freelance for so long actually made you better at what you do? Yeah, I do. I think there's no complacency. There's no, you know, if you don't do the work, you don't get paid. If, if you don't pitch the article, if you don't research, if you don't talk to that coach, if you don't see an angle that someone else didn't, you know, if you're not willing to work 14, 16 hour days in a row, <laughs> I mean, all of those things, I think, that that pressure, I think in anyone's life, it always drives you in a different way than something that you're guaranteed. Nick, we've never actually talked about this on the podcast now, but the LGBTQ community in tennis, I know you're involved in it. And I know there's been a couple trailblazers, especially on the women's side, you know, Billie Jean King, Martina Navratilova, there's even current players, but there hasn't been much on the men's side. Can you just maybe just talk about what your involvement is with, I know you run events and I know there's different organizations. Could you just maybe talk a bit about kind of what you guys do? Yeah, sure. Uh, you know, I, I think we always are tending to look at the professional players and who's out and who are these leaders and trailblazers and Billie Jean and Martina and so many other out lesbians on the WTA tour have done incredible work in being representatives and pushing for pushing for women's sports. And I also think pushing for the queer community in doing the same thing. And, you know, on the men's side, we haven't really had that representation. Brian Vahaley came out after his career once he had kids with his partner, Bill. I think that was something he saw in his kids of like, oh, I, I want to be my authentic self and I, and I want to try to help other people. You know, I've, I've always just seen my role again, as we've talked about as a storyteller. And so I, I saw something that was obviously personal to me as a gay man to look at, okay, the, this community isn't getting at the pro level the sort of representation or conversation that maybe we could be. And so in 2018, I partnered with Brian Vahaley and we also had Casey Delacqua in New York for the US Open. We did a event in New York City. We had 200 people there. We sold tickets. We raised money for the NYJTL, which is a great New York-based tennis organization. And I've since done, gosh, I think it's been five or six other events, Australian Open, Wimbledon, uh, U.S. Open again. And really the conversation has always been, how are we being more inclusive? And that's, that's it. Whether it's for getting more lesbians involved on the grassroots level, there haven't been as many women who have come into grassroots tennis. Working with organizations like the GLTA who do incredible tournaments all over the world, partnering with Pride Sport in the UK when we hosted Billie Jean and a group of young kids at the chairman's house at Wimbledon. That was really cool for us. So just trying to see these different communities and understand how do we get more people to come into tennis. And this last year at the Australian Open, we were lucky because Melbourne was functionally normal. And so we did have a, a gathering, a COVID safe gathering outside. And we had a representative from the trans community who came in and talked about how the trans community does or doesn't feel involved in Australia in the tennis sphere. And Tennis Australia in their diversity inclusion has tried to work really hard on getting more trans people into tennis, which is tough because you have a men's draw and you have a women's draw. So where does, where does the trans community fit in? 
I mean, that's just, that's the overlook of all the issues. And so trying to have a conversation about all of it. For me, conversation, stories, exchange of ideas, that's how we function as humans. And that's one little part of it that I've tried to play in the LGBT community and within the sport of tennis. Yeah, I would imagine talking about it openly is probably the first step, you know, but it sounds like the federations, some of the federations have got behind it. Tennis Australia, have the ATP and WTA, do they have any initiatives going on? Yeah, they do. You know, WTA Charities has been great with looking to see who they can support, how they can support. I think they're partnering with Proud to Play, which is an organization, I believe, based in Canada. You know, I've been on calls with the ATP and the WTA. I'm been working with the USTA now for a couple of years, Tennis Australia. And I've really tried to encourage those folks to work together. Where's the LTA on this? You know, there, sometimes it can be a little bit corporate, you know, like, We've, we've got the pride banner and we've got the logo for the month of June or July and we're good. And it's like, no, what are, what are the action items that you're doing on the ground? And I think that, I think we're coming around the corner. You know, I, th- I think so many people look at the ATP and say, well, why aren't there any out pro players? And there are a million different reasons for that. There also is the one reason that it just hasn't happened yet. And, and that's okay. So I think having the organizations do their work and, you know, walk the talk. I think I've seen Tennis Australia up close. They, they're trying to walk that talk um, and getting the research community more involved. You know, there's some great work being done at universities and people in the queer space that are, are working on really nuts and bolts of how, how does sport get out of its own way to be more inclusive. And that those kind of partnerships, I think, are really important. Do you think that players are more reluctant to do it, especially on the men's side, because they would be remembered for something other than their tennis or it may add extra pressure because they're definitely going to be in the media sphere? Do you think that's an element to it? Sure. I think 100% it could be. I also don't know. You know, I'm, I'm not a professional tennis player. I don't have to step out on court and ready play and face off against someone for a living. That's not what I do. And so I think, you know, the pressure that could come with that, you look at people like Jason Collins and Tom Daly and so many, you know, we talk about Billie Jean and, and Martina and Alison Van Funk and Gretman and what they've done on the WTA side has been tremendous. So what are the pressures that any of these players feel? I think if you're the world number 79 or 143 or 15 or whatever you are, and you all of a sudden decide to come out, that's a, that's a place that you have to feel very, very strong about who you are. And honestly, it is, it's that person's decision. So, you know, would I like for, for them to come out and to share who they are? Of course. But I'm one person. That's one opinion. So I think especially too, when we look at tennis media in particular, they're going to different media markets every week. So then you become that story every week. Again, I think it takes someone that's very rooted in who they are to make that decision. You've mentioned Billie Jean King there um, a couple of times. What's the biggest piece of advice that she's given you or the biggest piece of learning that you've kind of taken from her? You're going to hear some sirens because I'm in New York City here, but that's the the beauty of NYC. You know, Billie Jean has, it actually hasn't been advice. I tell this story because it's indicative of who she is, but I was an intern at Tennis Magazine when I was 21. And she came into the office one day for an interview with Tennis Magazine and she's going to the conference room and there were two editors with her and it was kind of this big hubbub because Billie Jean was there. 
And I remember nervously sitting at my desk pretending to be working. I wasn't working because I was so excited that Billie Jean was there. And she walked by the desk and the editor didn't introduce me. And I was like, Billie Jean just walked by and I didn't even get the chance to say hi. And she made it like most the way past my desk. And I kind of went to stand up and she saw me and she goes, Hi, I'm Billie Jean. It's nice to meet you. And I was like, of course I know who you are. But she she recognized the other. I was the other in that moment. And I've seen her do it at Pride panels that we've done. I've seen it, her do it you know, in a lot of the women empowerment work that she's done with the Billie Jean King Leadership Initiative. She can see beyond Billie Jean, which I think is the challenge for a lot of us every day is to see beyond ourselves. What, are, what am I doing today that isn't just me? And I think that's the more powerful, you know, can I, can I quote her? Can I find a Billie Jean, you know, statement or mantra that I love? Sure. It's how you make people feel. Right. And I, I think that she, she just has that way of getting out of her own way and getting into what's important to you and how do we work together to make it happen. And that's, I think, the, to me, the power of Billie Jean King. Yeah. She seems like a leader in more ways than one. You know, I, I hope I can meet her someday like you. <laughs> Tell me, Nick, you've covered a lot of tennis matches, slams, Davis Cup, uh, tour events, the whole lot. What's your most memorable tennis moment? Oof. Gosh, I mean, I'm, I'm lucky enough to have been at so many, you know, just the electricity. I think we're starting to feel it again. Hopefully we're doing it the right way with post COVID and, and vaccines and getting there slowly. The electricity of a crowd and, you know, the, the moments that people get to witness this hard work out on, on a tennis court. When you look at it from a human perspective, that's what just still blows my mind. You know, for me professionally in my career, I got 2017 at the Australian Open. I hosted a, a Twitter news show and I interviewed Serena on one night after she beat Venus in the final. And then I interviewed Roger on the next night after he beat Rafa in the final. And those were live stream, you know, lights on. We had hundreds of people around the set. That was really cool for me. Gosh, the, the, the moment that I. There's just been so many. I, I think to work in the era of Roger, Rafa, Novak, Andy, Stan, you know, call them the big five. I know the big three is, is what we, what we're going with now, but, and to cover the Williams sisters, you know, like bar none, I, I, I grew up with Venus and Serena. You know, I was in 1999, I was watching Serena beat Hingis in my, in my parents' kitchen in Montana. So I was like, I, just being able to to work with the athletes that I have, to have those human moments. I also love, this is a little cheesy, but I love going to these events and just seeing the power of tennis, seeing people be passionate as fans, seeing them get excited about watching Roger Federer practice, like if people go wild, and then also seeing like little kids who have no idea who Roger Federer is, but they're excited because they've got their little, you know, kitty tennis racket and a learn to play ball and they're going to get an autograph that day. That is, that is to me kind of the best part of, of this sport. And I, I hope that as a sport, we can continue to inspire people to, to do whatever they want with their lives. Yeah. No, it's fantastic to see that excitement. You know, I'm sure we'll get back to it sometime soon, but you mentioned they're interviewing Roger, interviewing Serena. I'm sure you're fairly nervous going into an interview like that. Tell me, have you had any disaster interviews? The ones that you just want to curl up into a ball? Oh, I've, I mean, 
maybe you haven't followed my career that closely. I've had many disaster, <laughs> but I, I think that's kind of the beauty of it too. There, there are lots actually. I did a non-live interview with Roger, one of my first on camera at Indian Wells. And for the intro, I introduced him as Rafael Nadal, which was Roger Federer was stood next to me. So minor mistake. I also, in 2016, I think it was, Muguruza had just won at the French Open. And I was, I had taken Spanish in high school and I was an idiot and thought I could string together a question in Spanish for her in Spanish press because then it would be more exclusive. It wasn't transcribed. And I like fumbled through this question in Spanish and she was looking at me like, what the hell are you doing? And all the Spanish journalists are looking at me like, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> someone goes to me as we're leaving. Someone goes, that was brave. <laughs> I was like, no, that was pretty stupid, actually. But you know, I, I think that's you learn and you make you make mistakes and you know, not not being too proud. Not that I'm proud of those moments, but I, they're human. I'm human. And so you know, things go wrong, cameras cut out, microphones don't work, whatever, you kind of make do. And, you know, you look at someone like Garbinier and Roger, they handled those moments so well because she could have just blown me off or he could have said, are you kidding me? You just call me Rafa? Like, I'm walking away. And so I, I, I appreciate that from them. Um, but yeah, there's, there's been plenty of unforced errors, we can call them, in my career, for sure. <laughs> Gives you a few stories to tell as well, doesn't it? Fair enough, yes. Okay, Nick, just to finish this up now, you're working with the Olympics at the moment and obviously Tokyo is coming up very, very soon. Are you going to Tokyo, first of all? I'm not, no. So we were, you know, because of COVID restrictions, they've cut down the number of people going to Japan majorly, which I, th I think is the right move. So I will cover it from the States. I will be across um, all of our coverage for olympics.com and a focus obviously on the American market because that's where my job lies but covering across hopefully a lot of the tennis, but also any major breaking news stories where I can contribute in any way from, from the States, that'll be my onus. Let's talk about Olympic tennis then, because obviously it's coming up and this is going to go out second week of Wimbledon. So we really should be doing Wimbledon predictions. But if you were to pick one player from the men's side and one player from the women's side, kind of players to watch, they don't have to be underdogs. They could be big names, but who would you, who would you be looking at going into Tokyo? I think it's going to be interesting first off to see who shows up, you know, for, for the Olympic tennis event. Tennis, I think in the Olympics is a different relationship than you look at some of the other big Olympic sports like gymnastics, swimming, track and field, diving. So I think the fields, especially in the singles will be interesting. I think you look at the resumes of Novak Djokovic and Roger Federer. They don't have a singles gold. Novak has a bronze and Roger has a doubles gold and a single silver, obviously. So is that a driving factor for them? I'm, I'm not quite sure. And I think on the women's side, as we saw at the French Open, you know, it is anyone's ball game. So just, as I mentioned, spoke to Bianca Andrescu. She said that she's really excited on going. Will she be healthy? Will she make the trip? I don't know. I think if Novak goes, I think that he is the favorite. You look at the conditions, hard courts, humid conditions in Tokyo, best of three format. I think that that's, that's a Novak Djokovic. That's a good recipe for him. <laughs> and on the women's side, I, I look at more of the younger, hungry players and also players, you know, like Andrescu, I think, like Coco Goff, who was kind of a last second qualifier for the Olympics for the American team. And also players like Simona Halep, should she go? You know, the Olympics in a lot of these different countries, they, it, the Olympics are massive. They're a cultural event like no other. And Romania for a long time had 
the standout women's gymnastics program. Well, they don't have that anymore. That's an American-run discipline. And so if you look at someone like Simona, Katra Kvitova won the bronze in Rio. She's talked about how important, important the Olympics are to her. Victoria Azarenka is a multi-time medal winner at the Olympics. Um, yeah, so I, I'm curious how the fields are going to shape up. If Novak goes, I think, surprise, I think he's the favorite. And then I think on the women's side, we look at someone like Andrescu, like Coco Goff, who could, you know, who could have a life-changing eight days in Tokyo versus someone like Serena, who, you know, I think Serena would love to go to it. If she shows up, that would be amazing. Already a legend at the Olympics herself. That's awesome. Yeah, no, I think Novak has a bit of unfinished business, doesn't he? He was so disappointed when he went out in Rio and the women's side is so open, but I do like your Coco Golf pick. But Nick, thanks so much for jumping on the podcast. Absolute pleasure to have you on and best of luck with the Olympics. Cheers, Ian. Thank you so much for having me. Really hope you enjoyed that chat with Nick. We will be back next week with another podcast episode. So until then, bye and thanks for listening. 